Hello all and welcome to another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a podcast looking at bizarre, obscure and often forgotten crimes from the shores of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator and True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, a show which I thank you all for joining me with today. I hope that you guys are all good. Now there's not too much waffling away at the start this week, as I proper beavered away and I've written a longer episode than I usually would. And I probably could have continued as well, did I not decide to draw a line right under it. There was that much to research concerning this week's case. But we shall get to that shortly. Thanks very much to new and returning listeners, plus to the new show Patreon supporters. That's Diane Lowe, Hannes, Annabelle Pickon, Jessica Rabbit and the mysteriously named Just Lisa. Cheers for your support all, it's very much appreciated and I'm about to start work on bonus episode number 15 which will be ready for release on the 1st of April. You guys can also join these and others as Patreon supporters of the show should you wish. It's very self-explanatory and it can be found either with the link in the episode show notes this week or by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. Now I don't have a show promo for inclusion this week, I'll be back to getting one in in the next episode of the show, but this week we're grabbing the bull right by the balls and getting straight down to the case in question for this episode. As I mentioned in the previous one, The Horror in the Hostel, this week I'm taking a slightly different focus than I normally would on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and I'm covering a topical case that's also quite a celebrated one, at least that I think it is anyway. It's a crime that stems back to 1986 and the town of Brighton in the English county of East Sussex, but one that's remained arguably in the public consciousness ever since it occurred. If it had ever waned, then it was back in the limelight at the end of 2018 when developments on it occurred. It's long been one that's on the fridge blackboard and it was one that was an early entry on it even before I started doing the podcast but one of those circumstances and expected developments in the case left me feeling that it was better to wait for it all to be able to tell the story in full. Well, wait no longer. As ever, the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes involving children, including descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week we look back at a case that I've entitled The Beast and the Babes. One of the 15 national trails in England and Wales, the South Downs Way runs for more than 100 miles across the southernmost counties of England, originating in the county of Hampshire and running right the way across to East Sussex. The paths and tracks that comprise it are used by millions of people each year, hikers, people taking part in various endurance races, or just general tourists who want to take in the various sites that the way is scattered with. For example, the Hill Chalk figure, the Long Man of Wilmington, is a popular one. More than a century ago, in July 1900 as it happens, it was from a spot here on the South Downs Way, a V-shaped natural valley known as Devil's Dyke, that an early test of the megaphone that's come to be in all our homes today was performed by an engineer named Horace Short. The sound that came booming across Sussex, a simple human voice but one amplified to deafening levels by a giant megaphone placed on top of Devil's Dyke, absolutely petrified people in the area when the experiment was performed. Now you can perhaps understand this, I mean, it was after all an age without radio and multimedia, and the only noises that many people in rural areas such as these knew 
were of the countryside, and so a distorted mix of human and mechanical sound suddenly coming out of nowhere would proper make you go 50p, 5p, wouldn't it? The newspapers christened this at the time the Howling Terror, comparing it to the work of the devil, but lamenting that the invention, because they did of course explain that it was a sound experiment, would come to dominate the then brand new 20th century, which it did of course, it was eventually refined, made more compact and introduced into the home, because if it hadn't, what would either of us be doing right now? 90 years later, Devil's Dyke was the scene of terror once again. The strong male hands clamped around the small girl's throat and began to squeeze, applying increasing pressure by using an unarmed combat technique known as the sleeper. After only a few seconds of this, the struggles weakened and her body went increasingly limp. On the rear seat of the vehicle, parked up at the picturesque isolated beauty spot of Devil's Dyke, the girl was then stripped naked and viciously sexually assaulted. Once he was finished with his vile assault, carried the girl's naked body to a gorse bus nearby and threw her into it like a rag doll. Constantly checking that no one was near, he gathered up the blue sweater, ski pants and pink anorak jacket that the girl had been wearing, plus the roller boots, which were a treasured Christmas gift that the girl had been so excited to go out and play with that afternoon, and he hid these items also, discarding them into bushes and trees around the area. He then hastily took off the now sodden and semen-stained grey tracksuit bottoms that he'd been wearing, and he threw them into another patch of gorse, before jumping into his vehicle and speeding off. But whilst the man drove back towards his home, all the time thinking that his horrific act would go undiscovered, at least until he was free of the area and home to establish an alibi, a couple out walking on Devil's Dyke, David and Susan Clifton, had just sat down in a clearing to have a flask of tea when they were suddenly confronted with a tragic, disturbing sight. A small girl, crying uncontrollably, came out of a clearing and staggered towards David and Susan. They were to say later that at first they believed the child was wearing a pale tracksuit, but it was only when she drew nearer that with horror they realised that she was naked and was bruised and bleeding from several deep scratches on her body. The whites of her eyes were pinpricked with dozens of tiny red speckles, and between sobs, in a display of the obvious fear and distress of her ordeal, the child asked them the simple question, Are you kidnappers? It was a man in a red car. David immediately took off his jacket and wrapped the child in it to protect her from the elements. Then he and Susan immediately took her to a nearby golf club, where they alerted police and the girl's parents. When her abductor had strangled and left her for dead, the seven-year-old girl had actually been far from it, probably surviving because her young brain was more resilient than that of an adult, meaning that she could suffer her oxygen supply being cut off for longer. Incredibly lucky to be alive. The girl had regained consciousness some minutes later, and naked, bleeding, lost in a strange place and absolutely petrified, she'd wandered around until she'd found David and Susan. Now what an ordeal that poor kid must have been through, that she was so afraid that the first question she could manage to ask is, are you kidnappers? It's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? 
Before long, the girl was safe, being comforted by her family and examined by a doctor at Brighton Hospital, where after a thorough examination and photographs of her various injuries had been taken, she was able to tell her story to police. Detectives listening to the child were left impressed with her courage and her calmness, as despite a horrific ordeal, she could articulately and in detail describe the awful events of that Sunday afternoon. Excited to play out on the roller skates that she'd got for Christmas the previous year, at about 3.30pm on the afternoon of Sunday the 4th of February 1990, the girl had placed them on and headed outside to play near a home on Hayborn Road, part of an estate in the Whitehawk area of Brighton. Finding roller skating a lot harder than she thought it would be though, the girl had messed about and fallen over a few times and had then headed to a corner sweet shop nearby to buy some sweets to cheer herself up. As she'd skated back towards her home from the corner shop, when she was about 200 yards from her house, she'd noticed a red car parked near a junction with its boot open and a man apparently working on it. As she drew level with the vehicle, the man had jumped out and accosted her, warning her, scream and I'll kill you. He'd lifted the frightened girl from behind and bundled her into the boot of the vehicle, slammed it shut and had driven it away. Trapped in the darkness of the car boot as it sped along, the girl managed to control her terror and somehow managed to take off her roller skates, using them to hammer on the interior of the boot lid in the hope that someone could hear her struggles. Then she managed to find a hammer and a can of WD-40 lubricant amongst the items scattered about the boot and finding these easier to wield than the skates, she repeated the process with them. Throughout her struggle and her terror, the girl managed to notice that the boot of the vehicle had small holes drilled in the lid, almost as if someone had deliberately made them to allow air to circulate in. She remembered hearing music being played in the car, and hearing a kidnapper telling her to shut up when she banged on the boot. After this nightmare journey of about 20 minutes and about 14 miles from where she'd been abducted, when the car stopped and the boot opened, the girl found herself at a place that was unfamiliar to her. It was a remote spot that looked like a country park, at least from her brief glimpse before she was roughly dragged out of the boot by the man who had kidnapped her. Dressed in a scruffy-looking grey tracksuit, the kidnapper was a young, slightly-built man who appeared to be in his late teens to early twenties, with straggly fair hair and a moustache. He picked the girl up by the throat and carried her to the back seat of the vehicle, where he lay her down and began to strangle her. After this, the child could only remember waking up frightened, cold and in pain in the gorse. She'd staggered around crying and shouting for her mum before finding David and Susan Clifton. It was a remarkable account, bearing in mind the horrific ordeal that the poor little girl had been through. For Senior Investigating Officer Detective Chief Inspector Tim O'Connor and his Deputy Detective Inspector Malcolm Bacon, it was immediately a case of déjà vu. Their minds immediately went three miles from where the girl had been snatched, and three years previously, because they'd seen something incredibly similar a horrific case that had affected not just the whole of the Brighton force, not just the whole town, but the whole country. And as soon as the child had finished telling her account from her hospital bed, the look that passed between both officers spoke volumes, because it said that each officer had exactly the same suspect in mind 
as being responsible. Ten-year-old Nicola Elizabeth Christine Fellows and nine-year-old Karen Jane Michelle Hadaway, who, although they attended different schools, were best friends who in 1986 lived three doors apart on Newick Road in Brighton's Moolscombe Estate. At about 3.30pm on the afternoon of Thursday the 9th of October, the two had returned home from their respective schools before Nicola had got changed and had gone to call for Karen. The two had then headed out to play, Karen still wearing her school uniform. They joined in some games with some other children who lived on the same estate, and at about 5pm, Nicola's mother, Susan Fellow, saw the two girls playing with a roller boot in the street nearby. Warned not to stray away too far because tea was about to go into the oven, Nicola told her mother that she'd be in shortly. That was the last time Susan Fellows was to see her daughter alive. About half a mile away from the Mulscombe Estate is Wild Park, a large wooded national park and local nature reserve. Between 5.15 and 5.30pm that Thursday afternoon, a park enforcement officer named Roy Badswell was on duty there when he noticed two girls who were playing in a tree nearby to the entrance to the park. Now this is relatively near an underpass that leads under the busy A27 Brighton to Lose Road from the Moolscombe Estate. And Roy especially remembered the two girls because one had a shocking vivid pink jumper on, the other was wearing a Coldine school uniform, and he spoke to them to warn them of the dangers of climbing the tree before continuing on his rounds. Roy was to later identify the two girls as Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows from the descriptions of their clothing and later their photographs. From this sighting in the park, the two girls were next seen at about 6pm by a 16-year-old girl named Tracy Cox, who lived near to both girls and knew both of them. Karen and Nicola were outside a fish and chip shop on Coldine Lane, which is nearby to Wild Park, and together the three girls walked back across the A27 down Barcombe Road towards the Mulscombe Estate, where Tracy told both girls to go home as it was beginning to get dark. As she headed towards her home, Karen and Nicola walked the opposite way down Ringma Road towards the direction of their homes, stopping to shout and wave goodbye to Tracy from a distance before continuing out of her sight. Now this was about 6.15pm. By 6.30pm, both Susan Fellows and Michelle Hadaway were now crossed that both girls had missed their tea and were still out, but as the darkness descended and there was no sign of either girl still, Anger and consternation gave way to ever-increasing panic. Michelle went everywhere looking for Karen and Nicola, knocking on neighbours' doors to see if the girls were in one of their houses, searching everywhere around the footpaths and playgrounds of the estate. She even drove down to the nearby seafront looking for the girls to see if they'd wandered off down there. But there was nothing, there was no sign of either girl. By 8.30pm, Michelle and her husband Barry and Susan and Nicola's father Lee were now frantic with worry and dread had crept in. Over the previous few weeks, there'd been a number of instances reported by several young girls in the local area of a fair-haired man attempting to entice them into a blue car, although none of these attempts had been successful. With these reports now in mind, a 999 call was made at 8.32pm reporting Karen and Nicola as missing. 
Now, in a community-spirited and close-knit area such as the Mulscombe Estate back in 1986, news of the missing girls spread like wildfire, and as soon as police were onto it, the residents of the estate had formed a 200-strong search party and had begun to look for the girls. It's what I believe a natural instinct is in such circumstances to join in. I remember some years ago a child had wandered off from nearby where I live, long before such things could be shared on social media, and instinctively, me and my friends, pretty much everyone who was available, all joined in the search that was held. Now the youngster was eventually found fine, he just wandered off with friends and missed his curfew, and when his mum got hold of him, he probably wished that he was still missing to be honest. But I'll always remember that urgency and adrenaline felt when we were looking, and the fear that something bad could have happened to the lad all through it. Undoubtedly, the Mulscombe Estate community who went looking for Karen and Nicola identified with this concept as well, and as the police and volunteer coordinated search party began to comb the area, working outwards from Newick Road, a police helicopter with a powerful searchlight searched the area from above, and door-to-door inquiries began. Absolutely everywhere was looked for the girls, thinking perhaps they'd gotten lost or one or both had had an accident and were lying injured or trapped somewhere. The search continued throughout the night and well into the next day of Friday the 10th of October, where with the benefit of daylight, the search for the missing girls had now extended to the area of Wild Park. By late that Friday afternoon, A substantial portion of the park had already been worked through by volunteers, which also consisted of both of the girls' families. Two of the volunteers, 18-year-old hospital porter Kevin Rowland and his friend Matthew Marchant, were just beginning to search an area of footpath that led through thick undergrowth to a clearing in the park known in the locality as Jacob's Ladder, and was a popular place for younger kids to have dens in the undergrowth around it and climb the trees, and for older kids to smoke, drink and do what the youth does. It seems to more likely be knife crime today, sadly, as recent events suggest, but there you go. All of a sudden, Kevin noticed a shock of vivid pink in the undergrowth, and it took him a second or two for what he'd found to actually dawn upon him. He noticed part of a body, the side of a face and a hand at first, then he took in the whole scene. In a makeshift den in undergrowth just off the footpath lay the two missing girls. Karen lay at a right angle to Nicola, with her head actually resting in Nicola's lap. A cursory glance may have suggested that both girls could almost be asleep, as in the fairy tale, but then the horrific, tragic realisation dawned upon Kevin. They weren't asleep. Both Karen and Nicola were dead. Kevin turned to Matthew, who was some yards further back looking at the opposite side of the path, and with the colour draining from his face, he could only say, Oh God, I've found them. Go and get some help quickly. Whilst Matthew then ran off to raise the alarm and to get assistance, Kevin sat down a short distance from the bodies, crushed and shell-shocked. He was left stunned for weeks afterwards, requiring tranquilizers to cope with his discovery. Kevin was still sat there when a short time later, Matthew arrived back with police officer Paul Smith and another member of the search party, a 20-year-old local resident named Russell Bishop. 
Whilst the officer had a cursory look at the scene and then got on his police radio to confirm that it was both girls and they'd both been found and were deceased, Russell Bishop made to approach the bodies of the two girls but was physically prevented from doing so by Kevin Rowland who raised his hand and physically stopped Bishop from approaching the bodies. A post-mortem was later to reveal that both Nicola and Karen had been sexually assaulted and manually strangled before being redressed and laid out in the tragic position that Kevin had found them in. Nicola had also savagely been battered around the face. Now any crime against a child is to be one most likely that stays in the public conscious, yet only a handful seem to, don't they? There's the tragic murder of Sarah Payne, of course, that people still remember, and the Moores murders need absolutely no introduction, still more than 50 years after that horror but so many others fall by the wayside, sadly, too soon forgotten. The murders of Karen and Nicola were two that never seemed to. This was a crime that broke the hearts of the nation. And whilst the official police operational title was Operation Yukon, it soon came to be better known as the Babes in the Wood Murders, a sobriquet that has existed for the crime ever since. By the time a week since the murders had passed, the investigation had become the biggest in Brighton police history, even surpassing that into the 1984 provisional IRA bombing of Brighton's Grand Hotel, in which five people connected with the Conservative Party conference being held there at the time were killed and another 31 were injured. More than 10,000 people had been spoken to by the 300 detectives working on the case, including all 7,000 residents of the Mulscombe estate, and at a memorial service held three days after the bodies were discovered, as the local priest, Reverend Michael Porteous, urged a weeping congregation to erase hatred from your hearts. The public feeling that was proper rife in the area was summed up by the statement given by Karen's one-time babysitter, 37-year-old Angela Cork. She said simply, if I saw the man who did it now, I would strangle him with my bare hands. A reconstruction of the last known movements of Karen and Nicola was shown on BBC TV's Crime Watch UK a week after the murders, where good old Nick Ross outlined to the millions of viewers that the show had who were watching the well-respected, useful show that the killer of Karen and Nicola could be from anywhere but was most likely a local person a person that both girls knew well. Thanks to Redcard74, the epic YouTuber that he is, or she is, or I don't know, the reconstruction is one that's available on YouTube and a link to it, along with some other links concerning this week's case, will be with this week's show notes. So from the start, police had considered that the killer was a local man, and there were several reasons for them doing so. The location that the two girls' bodies had been found was not the type of place that you'd just stumble upon by accident to dump two bodies. It was in a long-established den of sorts, in a clearing through undergrowth off a remote path that only a local person would likely know about. Also, both girls had been under strict instruction not to play in the park, it being deemed too far from home for them to play unsupervised due to their ages. Now whilst both girls were generally regarded as being good kids, they were also normal kids. They could give a bit of cheek, they could be a bit rebellious and could get up to mischief. Both sets of parents were to admit this. So whilst they could have gone to the park of their own accord sure, 
both girls were known to be absolutely terrified of the dark. There's no way that they would have gone to Wild Park alone in the darkness, unless they'd been there with someone that they knew and trusted. Perhaps their killer had intercepted them on the way home after Tracy had waved them off, proposed some harmless activity which the girls trustingly agreed to, and had ultimately led them across the busy A27 road into Wild Park and to their deaths. If he was a local man, then he had to have been spoken to already. The inquiries had been that intensive, and just a few weeks after the murders, detectives believed that they'd identified the double murderer, for it was at this time that Russell Bishop, the volunteer who'd been on the scene when the girls' bodies were discovered, re-entered the investigation. The 20-year-old part-time mechanic, unemployed builder's labourer and former roofer, Russell Bishop, lived on the same estate as the two girls, where he was a well-known figure and he was known by both girls' families. He'd even babysat for both Karen and Nicola on a number of occasions. He was a drinking acquaintance and friend of Nicola's father Barry, so it was perhaps natural that he would enthusiastically join in with any search. I mean, you'd do that in a heartbeat, wouldn't you, if it was a kid that you knew, or it was a kid near to where you lived who was missing, wouldn't you? Of course you would. And he'd certainly been this, not just through the search, but through the resulting investigation also. Bishop had even asked the worried parents of each girl early on in the search if he could borrow items of their daughter's clothing so that his mongrel terrier dog Misty, who Bishop claimed was a trained tracker dog, might help find them by following a scent trail. He'd been given one of Karen's coats to do just this and had then set off with a police officer to make a search of the Wild Park area. And of course, he'd been nearby to Jacob's Ladder with a police officer, PC Paul Smith, when Matthew Marchant came rushing down to inform that they'd just discovered Karen and Nicola. In the early days of the investigation, he'd been pictured several times in the local press coverage, including pictured leading a volunteer drive to hand out police appeal leaflets for witnesses to come forward. But it was the tales Bishop was to tell anyone who would listen to him in the days following the murders that began to raise suspicions. By all accounts, Bishop was one of these people who, to listen to them, They've been to Old Zealand, you know what I mean. He'd come out with some right whoppers, seemingly having an inability not to. One acquaintance of his described him as follows. If he read about a car crash, he would tell all that he was involved in it. He just couldn't help himself. Bishop had already drawn attention to himself because on the day after the girls' bodies were found, He'd given a statement to police saying that he'd noticed the girls playing in the park at around the same time that the parkkeeper Roy Badswell had seen and spoken to them. Bishop claimed that he'd been there at the time walking his dog, and Roy was later to confirm that he'd walked past a young man in a blue sweatshirt with a terrier dog shortly after scolding the girls for climbing in the tree. Therefore, by his own admittance, Bishop was one of the last people to see Karen and Nicola alive. He'd also, of course, been at the scene when the bodies were found and had made to approach them but had been stopped from doing so by Kevin Rowland and had not got any closer than a few metres away. Now, you could put this down to him just being nosy or some sort of Sado's desire to feel important and to be the centre of attention, but Bishop then began telling everyone he could that it had been he who discovered the bodies. He gave accounts of how the girls' bodies were laid out 
he began telling everyone how he noticed blood-specked foam around Nicola's mouth and how he'd approached the bodies and had actually checked Karen's neck for a pulse and Nicola's wrist. When news of this filtered back to police some days later, Bishop was brought in and asked again about his movements on the day of the girls' murders, and this time his story was filled with contradictions to his previous statement and extra details were added. He now claimed that he'd spent that morning digging for fishing bait and had then headed over to visit a friend of his, Dougie Judd, who coincidentally was a lodger at the fellow's house. Bishop had been with the teenage girl that he was having an affair with at the time, Marion Stevenson, and he remembered Karen and Nicola being there expressly because Nicola had said as Marion and Bishop were leaving, get lost you slag. Charming, eh? He claimed that after this he had gone alone to the University of Sussex campus where he'd planned to steal a red Ford Escort from. I know, master criminal this, eh, isn't it? before heading back to another friend's house to buy cannabis and to walk Misty in Wild Park, where he again saw Karen and Nicola. This had altered from his initial account of going to meet up with his teenage lover that evening, and that he'd headed to a newsagent's to buy a newspaper, but had realised that he hadn't had any money on him to do so. He claimed that he then returned home alone to the house that he shared with his partner, a 20-year-old office cleaner named Jennifer Johnson, and had had a bath before cooking a meal and washing the clothes that he'd had on that day because he'd fallen in dog mess, he claimed, while he was out walking Misty that afternoon. Bishop then claimed Jennifer had arrived home with their two-year-old son Victor just before 8pm that evening, just as EastEnders was about to finish, which should have finished many years ago, to be honest. And after putting the child to bed, the couple had watched a film called Runaway Train before going to bed themselves. At 2.30am the next morning, Bishop was woken by police asking if he could help inquiries with the then still presumed missing girls. Now that's a bit of an account isn't it really, and it's one that Bishop could seemingly reel off with no worries. Yet it seems too specific in certain bits, and there were several inconsistencies with the accounts that he'd already given. But it was when police asked him outright about why he was going around telling lies about the day, and specifically about finding the girls, the bishop really became agitated. Caught in his lies, he could only admit that he'd told people how he'd discovered the bodies and felt unsuccessfully for a pulse. To make myself look big and to feel important, I apologise for misleading the police. He further claimed that his tales of seeing blood-flecked foam on the lips of Karen had been guesswork. And this could have been just that, the words of a pathetic nondescript fantasist highlighted for his nonsense, if it wasn't for one thing. The claims that Bishop had made about the positioning of the bodies and the bloody foam on the lips had been correct, but he'd never been close enough to the bodies to determine this, and, there was, and these were strict details that were at the time held back and not made public, the type of facts that are habitually held back in all investigations to determine the validity of any confessions that should arise. Even Kevin Rowland, who discovered the bodies, hadn't looked closely enough to see this, so the only others who could have known these details were police officers and the killer. So how could Bishop have known? Was it lucky guesswork, or was it another reason? Three weeks after the murder, on the 31st of October 1986, 
Russell Bishop was arrested by detectives on suspicion of the murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows. His response when cautioned was, No, no, it's not me, fuck off, leave it out. Bishop was questioned at Brighton's John Street Police Station for 51 hours in total, contradicting himself several times with his changing stories yet again from his initial statement before he was ultimately released without charge. Upon his release from custody, knowing the way gossip would spread like wildfire around the estate, he immediately headed to the fellow's household where he expressed to Barry and Susan that he was innocent and police had got everything completely wrong. After all, if he was guilty, then he would have been charged, wouldn't he? That was to change after investigating officers had learned a lot more about Russell Bishop. Born in 1966 into a strict household that was ruled over by his domineering mother Sylvia, a renowned dog breeder and trainer, and his subservient father Roy, who coincidentally was the second of the Bishop household to by then have been arrested on suspicion of murder, as eight years before Roy had been questioned as a suspect over the to-date still unsolved murder of Margaret Frame in Brighton's Stanmer Park, a case that there's a blog post about on the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog if anyone is interested. You never know, it may even feature as a future episode. Biggest hint that I can possibly drop there. And being the youngest of four brothers, Russell Bishop was the classic runt of the litter. He was the small one, the weak one, and always preferred the company of younger children than himself, even into his teens, who he felt he could impress with his ever-tall stories of how tough he was, his sexual prowess, or his criminal successes. Described as educationally subnormal, Bishop was poor academically and was only barely able to read and write, being diagnosed with dyslexia. He was to attend several different special residential schools in both Sussex and even as far away as Worcester, but he'd absconded several times from each of these, and from age 16 he was instead cheated at home by a family friend. Never holding down a full-time job as an adult, Bishop had instead drifted into petty crime, but only minor stuff, breaking into gas and electricity meters for their contents, small-time burglaries, thefts from vehicles, that kind of thing. Any legitimate income he did earn was through casual work as a builder's labourer or roofer, or tinkering about and fixing cars around the estate where he lived. He seemed more content to laze about carefree, being out with his dog, sea fishing, or playing football and cricket, a teammate of his being none other than Barry Fellows. Police also learned, some of which they'd already glimpsed for themselves through his interviews and statements, was that Bishop was widely known in the area as being a habitual liar. He'd come out with all sorts of crap, examples being that he'd been arrested in connection with the Brighton bombing, he hadn't, and his mongrel terrier Misty being a fully trained tracker dog that was insured for the sum of £17,000, which she wasn't. Why are people like this? I'm sure that we all know one, I know a couple actually. I have mentioned my old mate Bill on the show before now, the guy who could slam a revolving door or run faster than email to listen to him. Like Bill is, or was, I've not seen him for many years and I'm not even sure if he's still alive now. But Most of these people are harmless attention seekers I'm sure, but not all. I mean, we've already met a couple of fantasists in previous show episodes who it turns out aren't harmless, haven't we? 
And if Bishop didn't sound ace enough already, he was also well known to have an unhealthy sexual interest in young girls. His teammates told how he was constantly distracted by and had a habit of wolf whistling at schoolgirls when they walked past, and how he would stare intently at young girls in skirts, especially when they were doing things like handstands, commenting such things as, wait until she's just a bit older. He had a strong interest in hardcore pornography, and there were even unsubstantiated claims that Bishop encouraged local teenage girls to appear in homemade pornographic films that were passed around men on the Mulscombe estate. Despite living in a Stevens Road ground floor flat in the Hollingdean area of Brighton with his partner, Jennifer, who was pregnant at the time with the couple's second child and their young son, Bishop had a reputation as being a ladies' man with a string of girlfriends, several of whom were still in school. He was at that time having an affair with a 16-year-old girl named Marion Stevenson, who knew both of the murdered girls and lived just around the corner from Karen and Nicola, and who Bishop had lived with for a brief period. So this was one of the last people admittedly to see Karen and Nicola alive and who could be placed in Wild Park at around the same time as the girls had been seen there. They knew him well because he'd been their babysitter many times, and although he was one of the first people at the scene when the girls' bodies were found, he hadn't approached or even been near enough to see the girls, yet he could accurately describe the position and appearance of the bodies, which he was going around bragging about, saying how he'd found them and even checked for a pulse on both which he hadn't, and he kept lying about his movements and changing his accounts. On the 3rd of December 1986, Russell Bishop was re-arrested and charged with the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway and was remanded in custody, of course because this is standard for a murder suspect, but equally for his own protection, as public feeling had reached fever pitch around the Mulscombe estate. He maintained his innocence throughout the best part of the year that he spent in custody in Brixton Prison awaiting trial, during which he became a father for the second time when Jennifer gave birth to the couple's daughter Haley. Bishop spent the period on remand in fear of being attacked as an alleged sex offender and reportedly refused to eat any pre-cooked prison food in case it had been poisoned or contaminated with ground glass. He instead existed on pre-packaged biscuits and chocolates that were brought in by his visiting family, who believed wholeheartedly in his innocence and were convinced the police had arrested the wrong man. His mother Sylvia said after his initial arrest, They've got a wally, I mean, he does tell porkies, he does it for attention but he's never hurt anyone by his porkies, not in his life. She was almost prophetic, because amidst chaotic scenes in November 1987 at his trial at Lewes Crown Court, Bishop was sensationally to be acquitted of the murders of both Karen and Nicola. Did police get it wrong? At Bishop's trial, despite the jury being told of the inconsistencies in his various stories and the other circumstantial evidence, plus forensic evidence presented by the prosecution that they alleged linked Russell Bishop to the crime, Bishop's defence managed to highlight a series of blunders in the prosecution case. One of these key mistakes was a failure to accurately record the temperatures of the girls' bodies when they were discovered and therefore be able to accurately state an exact time of death for the two girls. 
At Bishop's trial, the prosecution suggested to the jury that Karen and Nicola had been killed shortly after they'd last been reliably seen, sometime between 6.15pm and 6.30pm, when witnesses had come forward seeing Bishop leave in Wild Park, where of course the girls were found. But when the defence highlighted that there was no scientific evidence backing up that claim, the prosecution were as a result unable to substantially challenge the various alibis Bishop had given for the time of the murders. The defence also highlighted how blood had been discovered on Karen's underwear but had not been analysed, and although it had been established at the post-mortem that both girls had been manually strangled, nobody had measured the hand marks around their necks or had attempted to take fingerprints left by the strangler. But the key piece of evidence for the prosecution was a blue Pinto branded sweatshirt that was found discarded on a footpath close to the railway line near Mulscombe Station on the day of the murder. Bishop had been seen wearing a very similar blue sweatshirt on the day that the girls went missing, although he was to allege that it was a blue and white flecked one that he was wearing that day. Because the footpath lay directly between Wild Park and Bishop's home, and was considered the natural and quickest route Bishop would have taken to get home, police believed that he discarded the top after killing Karen and Nicola, fearing that it could link him to the crime and that it would be a forensic trove for police. Now it was, fibres from the Pinto sweatshirt were found on the girl's clothing, and there were also nearly 700 star-shaped ivy epidermal hairs that suggested whoever had worn it had entered the ivy-covered den where the girls' bodies were found. Forensics also seemed to suggest that the top was Bishop's. Four of its fibres were found on trousers taken from his home after a search, as well as five fibres from one of Marion Stevenson's skirts that were also discovered on the Pinto jumper, and paint stains on the sweatshirt matched the maroon colour of a friend's mini-vehicle that Bishop had previously helped to respray. He continued to deny, however, that it was his sweatshirt that had been discovered, but when his partner, Jenny Johnson, had been questioned, she had contradicted this, telling police that it was indeed Bishop's jumper, and even asking, are you returning Russell's jumper? The prosecution hoped that this would undermine Russell Bishop's credibility and portray him as a liar trying to distance himself from a crucial piece of evidence. But at his trial, when Jenny Johnson entered the witness box at Lou's Crown Court, she changed the story, telling the jury that she'd never seen the top before. The defence also jumped on the possibility of the sweatshirt being cross-contaminated by examiners. Following this, after direction by Judge Mr Justice Shyman to the jury that unless they were sure, firstly that the girls were dead by 6.30pm, secondly that the blue sweatshirt belonged to Bishop, and thirdly that it was connected with the murder, then they should acquit. On the 10th of December 1987, they retired to consider their verdict. It took the jury just 129 minutes to return a verdict of not guilty on both counts of murder. Absolute pandemonium erupted then in court number one. Bishop's family celebrated with his brother Alec even jumping into the dock to try and embrace him. There were scuffles, screams and tears. Bishop's father looked as though he was going to have a heart attack and his mother Sylvia even ended up being restrained by police officers as she shouted, if my husband has a heart attack, I'll kill you. 
Bishop himself even shouted and appealed for calm from the dock, and outside, once he was released from custody, his solicitor Ralph Hames was able to declaim at length about the disgrace that such a flimsy, inadequate prosecution case had ever been taken to court. Then the celebrations continued. If you head to the show notes, there's a link to some footage of Bishop's brother announcing the not guilty verdict to people outside the court. It's worthy of having a look just to see the jubilation felt there by supporters who were convinced of Bishop's innocence. But this jubilation wasn't universal. In all of the pandemonium, few people would remember afterwards the sight of Karen's absolutely devastated father Lee holding his head in his hands following the verdict, or the obvious pain on the faces of Michelle, Susan, Barry and the members of their respective families who'd attended every single day of the trial, how absolutely crushed they were. Nor every single member of the investigating team who felt the same way, because everyone remained convinced that they had had the right man in custody and the jury had got it wrong. In fact, Sussex police were that convinced that the jury had been mistaken in acquitting Bishop of these charges that they took the unusual step of issuing a public statement reading The investigation is now closed. We are not looking for anyone else. It was as far as police could legally go to admit what they believed, but they really were that sure. And now, whichever way they looked at it, there was a killer on the loose. Bishop, meanwhile, became a bit of a cause celebre following his acquittal. He appeared in the press and on the television news criticising the police, accusing them of trying to frame him, neglecting the fact that the evidence against him had only been challenged successfully, not proven wrong, and instead claimed that it was a fit-up, a witch-hunt, whichever making a point of demanding that the real killer be found, but apparently wasn't universally believed. Instead, he and his family became the targets of a hate campaign, because many people in the area believed that he'd gotten away with a double murder. Bricks were thrown through their windows on a regular basis, the cars were vandalised and sabotaged, including wheel nuts being loosened and the brake cables cut on a number of occasions. Graffiti and excrement were daubed all over the house and letters were sent to the Bishop family and to the local newspapers, an example of which is as follows. To the editor, please tell the Bishops and Jenny Johnson to get out of Brighton. Last night was just a warning to them. Tell the liars to get out and stay out. They all lied to keep a sex monster on the street. Yours, 18. This letter was delivered to the local newspaper a mere week after Bishop had been acquitted, and the night after his home was petrol-bombed in an attack. Throughout the week leading up to this, hundreds of flyers bearing his picture had appeared all around Brighton, containing the words, Russell Bishop, warning notice, this man is a child killer. Bishop had wisely moved his family out of the house following this attack to a house at Preston Barracks on the Lewes Road and police had kept a constant close eye on him following this, certain that a double killer was walking free. And now, three years later in 1990, when another child had been targeted, Bishops was the first name to mind of pretty much all of the investigating officers. When detectives went to the house Bishop and his family lived in, Bishop objected strongly to their presence, claiming harassment and 
fit me up once again, causing a scene and even threatening them with a poker before he was arrested and handcuffed. But DCI O'Connor's team had even more reason to be suspicious over Bishop's extreme reaction to being hauled in for questioning over the Devil's Dyke attack, because parked right outside his front door was a red Ford Cortina car, registration number TJN673W, exactly the same type of vehicle as had been described by the seven-year-old girl. Bishop was trying to sell the vehicle at the time he was arrested due to the sign in the back window depicting for sale £750 or nearest offer. But it wasn't heading for a quick sale at all. It was instead heading to a garage at Sussex Police Headquarters at Lewes for a forensic examination and was so loaded onto a transporter vehicle and taken away. After two days of intensive questioning, Bishop was placed onto an identification parade, which was delayed when Bishop deliberately wet his long, unkempt and usually very dry hair before he was due to take part in it. After he was made to dry his hair, he went and sat in a line-up with nine other men, whilst from behind a protective screen and all the while holding her mother's hand, the seven-year-old victim of the Devil's Dyke attack studied the faces of each man in turn. She had no hesitation whatsoever, saying, that's the man who did it, that's him, and pointing to one of the men sat in the lineup. The man she'd pointed to and identified as her attacker was number nine, Russell Bishop. Thirty minutes later, Bishop was charged with kidnapping, attempted murder and indecent assault, but police knew that they would need a lot more than the girl's testimonial evidence to try and gain a conviction. They'd learned following his acquittal only a few years before that any case against him would have to be watertight, and this got off to a good start with news from forensic scientists regarding the Ford Cortina seized from outside Bishop's home. Air holes had been found drilled in the boot lid, just as the girl had described, and also inside the boot was a hammer and a can of WD-40, the items she'd described using to batter on the boot lid. To support this, microscopic tests on the hammerhead showed flecks of paint that exactly matched the paint from the boot lid. Because of the officially unsolved murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows in the same area, the attack on the girl had made national headlines and the resulting publicity had brought out many witnesses. One in particular excited police, another couple out walking on Devil's Dyke on the Sunday afternoon the girl had been attacked and left for dead, had come forward to report seeing a red Ford Cortina parked in the area around the same time. They'd passed near enough by it that they could determine that the windows of the vehicle were steamed up and assuming that a couple were in the vehicle making love, they'd walked quickly on by. Another couple found could give much more damning evidence. Raymond Simmons and his wife Linda were out walking their dog when they too had seen the car in the same place and had given a statement to this effect. When asked if there were any other specific details about the vehicle that he could remember, Raymond had replied, Oh yes, there was a notice in the back window. It said, For sale, £750 or nearest offer. Smoking gun there, eh? More excellent forensic news was to follow, this time from the clothes that the girl had been wearing when she was snatched. They'd been discovered only a short distance from where she'd been found by Susan and David, 
and material from the girl's sweater had revealed several distinctive blue fibres upon an examination. The mat from the boot of the Ford Escort also revealed fibres that were a perfect match for these, so this was already strong evidence, but semen stains were also found on the sweater, as well as on a pair of discarded men's grey tracksuit bottoms that had been found nearby to the girl's clothes. When a comparison was made, the semen was found to have been deposited on both items of clothing by the same man. A DNA test was carried out, and the laboratory reported that without doubt, the semen had come from Russell Bishop. Another vital piece of evidence came from a different source. As soon as the incident had been reported, the area had been cordoned off to all vehicles except emergency vehicles and police search teams. A number of soft tyre tracks were found in the car park where the Ford Cortina, which was now accepted to have been Bishop's vehicle, had been seen, and plaster casts and photographs of all of these tracks were painstakingly collected, but one set was to prove of more interest than most. The set had come from a vehicle that had three tyres of a single make, a Tiger brand, but a badly worn fourth tyre that was a Uniroyal. Apparently, this was an unusual combination. To being personally, a tyre is a tyre. If it fits, if it stays up, and if it goes around without coming off, I don't really pay attention to who makes it. But examiners here, having seen a multitude of these combinations and ruled them out one by one, could only remember one combination like this. And guess whose vehicle it was on? A check proved this to be accurate. Russell Bishop's trial for the Devil's Dyke attack began at Lewes Crown Court on the 14th of November 1990, where he once again denied all of the charges against him. Miss X, she's of course never been named the girl who'd been abducted and left for dead, and by that time eight years old, bravely agreed to give evidence in court in person, a gesture that only underlined the respect and admiration that the brave girl had already earned from every member of the investigating team. She really was a remarkable witness. So small that a number of cushions had to be placed on her chair to bring her up to eye level with the judge, and whilst clutching a white teddy bear and behind a protective screen to shield her from the view of the accused, she told of her afternoon of terror in a clear and confident voice. The girl said, he put me in the boot of his car and drove away. When he took me out of the boot, he strangled me. After that, I can't remember anything else. It was like a dream. I dreamt I was talking to someone else. I dreamt he gave me a little toy and said to me, If you lose it, I will kill you. He thought I was dead, but I wasn't. I was in a deep sleep. When I woke up, I was in the middle of the bushes. I was scared and dizzy and kept falling over. Then I saw some nice people who helped me. The jury was shown the photographic evidence taken showing the girl's injuries and were also played a video of her looking for the man who attacked her at the identity parade that was held by Brighton Police where she was seen unhesitatingly picking out number 9 in the lineup, Russell Bishop as the man who'd attacked and left her for dead. They were also taken on a three hour visit to Devil's Dyke to see for themselves the scene of the crime. Back in court, Home Office expert Dr John Bark told the jury next of the DNA comparison that had been made between the sample taken from Bishop after his arrest and the semen found on both the girl's sweatshirt and the discarded grey tracksuit bottoms. The evidence showed that the odds of the semen on both garments not belonging to Bishop 
were a staggering 80 million to 1. Bishop, meanwhile, steadfastly denied all of the charges against him and facilitated the claim that he'd been framed by police who were determined to get him once again following his 1987 acquittal for the murders of Karen and Nicola. Now, this fact had been kept from the jury, but it had been revealed by the defence QC Ronald Thwaites on the third day of the trial, with him telling the court, The police collectively and the scientists have strained every fibre and sinew of their being to bring home Bishop's head to you, which may be some of them regarded as the missing trophy they failed to get when they were last here. In other words, did some officers set out in this case to ensure that they did have sufficient evidence to persuade any jury regardless of how they got it and even if they had to arrange it or manufacture it themselves. However, any assertion that the police had been out to deliberately get Bishop or had framed him in any way was resoundingly rejected by a jury of six men and six women when they retired for deliberation on the 13th of December 1990. The evidence pointing to Bishop's culpability was so overwhelming and persuasive that after just 4 hours and 20 minutes, they returned with the unanimous verdict of guilty on all charges. To a chorus of wild cheering from the public gallery, Russell Bishop burst into tears and sobbed uncontrollably as he was led from the dock to begin the life sentence that was handed down to him, with a minimum of 14 years to serve before ever being considered for release. Immediately following his incarceration, a crime reporter from the Brighton Argus newspaper wrote to Bishop in prison to ask him outright if he'd killed Karen and Nicola, perhaps hoping that now Bishop had been convicted and jailed for a similar offence, he'd have some degree of pity for the girls' families and that he would confess to the babes in the wood murders. There is more chance of me growing another hole in my arse. Bishop chose to ignore the question completely and instead used the opportunity to describe his own ordeal, sending back a self-pitying account of his life in a Category A prison. He wrote of his fear and despair, and how his own children were helping to keep his spirits up in an environment where he constantly had to watch his back for fear of violence or retribution for the crimes that he'd been jailed for. He was never to admit his crimes. He wrote that at times he felt that he couldn't go on and that there was always a way out of jail in a box or a bag. And he even said in the letter, I can't even go back to Sussex. It's a very hostile world now. At the end of all this, I can never be happy. Does your heart bleed as much as mine did when I read that? Bishop's letter was published, leading to public uproar and a demand for the reintroduction of the death penalty. That's how much sympathy his letter got for him. Conversely, the same newspaper received and published another letter around the same time, this one written on children's decorative stationery. It was an open letter from Little Miss X to his school friends, and it simply read as follows. To all my friends, thank you for all the lovely presents you've given me. I'm feeling very well now, and all my scratches have gone. I'm having a lovely Christmas and I should like to wish you all a Merry Christmas. Simple, but what a powerful contrast to Bishop's self-obsessed bleating, eh? The Babes in the Wood investigation was never closed after Bishop's acquittal, but frustratingly, it remained officially inactive. 
Every year, a large banner was placed by the girls' families at the entrance to Wild Park demanding justice for our babes, and a memorial to the two girls was established in the park, a hawthorn tree complete with attached commemorative plaques and photographs of Karen and Nicola. The memorial has remained in place and been lovingly and pristinely kept ever since. Although police were satisfied that the killer of Karen and Nicola was now locked away where he could never ever again hurt another child, it rankled them that due to the double jeopardy law, Bishop could never be retried for their murders, this time with ever advancing forensic science being at police disposal. Because it was an unsolved case, all of the physical and forensic evidence from Operation Yukon had been kept in secure and sterile storage. And then in 2005, there was a breakthrough. The double jeopardy laws were codified in 2005, meaning that Bishop could now face a fresh trial over the murders if substantial new evidence was discovered. But it's a bit of a one-shot deal, really, and police desperately wanted to get it right and make a watertight case against Bishop, this one that no defence lawyers could shoot down. He was still locked away for the 1990 attack and was going nowhere, he'd been denied parole twice, and so for several years they waited for the best science that they could be to catch up, to be able to examine the evidence with forensic techniques far more advanced than those of 1986. By 2014 that science was cutting edge and ready, and in August that year, Roy Green, a senior scientific advisor at Eurofin's Forensic Services, was engaged to re-examine the Operation Yukon evidence, including both the blue Pinto sweatshirt and tapings that had been taken from the bodies of both girls. Roy was head of a highly regarded forensics team, having assisted in bringing the killers of Stephen Lawrence to justice, and by utilising cutting-edge 21st century testing technique, DNA 17 short tandem repeat testing, Roy managed to recover a billion to one DNA match linking Russell Bishop to the discarded Pinto sweatshirt. Meanwhile, using Y23 short tandem repeat profiling, a sensitive technique specific to male DNA, a taping taken from Karen Hadaway's left forearm in 1986, was also found to contain traces of Russell Bishop's DNA. Got you, you bastard. On the 10th of May 2016, Russell Bishop was shocked to see that the van he thought was taking him from Her Majesty's Prison Franklin to a different prison had instead arrived at Durham Police Station, where at 9.37am, officers from Sussex Police were there to greet him and then re-arrested him on suspicion of the murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows in 1986. This is another moment that's available to see online and of course a link to the video is with the episode show notes along with an extract released from a subsequent police interview with Bishop. Make sure you have a look, it's a unique and quite a remarkable watch really. The wheels of justice do turn slowly though and it took until December 2017 for the Court of Appeal to order the 1987 acquittals quashed and called for a second murder trial for Bishop. Bishop's second trial for the murders of Karen Hadaway and Nicola Fellows began at the Old Bailey in London in late October 2018. It was attended each day by Nicola's mother and father, Barry and Susan, 
whose marriage had sadly long since dissolved in the years preceding their daughter's murder, and also Michelle Hadaway, who although in poor health and having to use a wheelchair, was determined to see in person the campaign for justice that she'd spearheaded for 32 years come to fruition. Karen's father Lee was one person who wasn't there to see it, for he'd sadly died of a heart attack in 1998. A broken heart that he'd had for 11 years, it was claimed. Bishop glared out from the dock as Prosecutor Brian Altman QC told the jury that the case against Bishop was not just based on his attempt to similarly kill another child, but on other compelling evidence. He explained how a significant part of the inquiry had been to re-evaluate various areas of scientific work that were performed for the purposes of the 1987 trial, but through the lens of modern-day techniques. DNA profiling, which although available in 1986 and 1987, was then in its infancy. In the wonderful legal speak that always leaves me impressed because I always love the command of English that these QCs have, Mr Altman then told how the original evidence from 1986 was still there waiting like a forensic time capsule. Joel Benethan QC, defending, retorted and tried to go down the 1987 trial route and portray this forensic time capsule evidence as being leaky and still hopelessly comprised by cross-contamination as has been suggested in 1987. But the prosecution was able to show that although knowledge of DNA may have been in its infancy in 1986, awareness of the dangers of cross-contamination of evidence certainly wasn't. An independent expert, Rosalind Hammond, testified that she'd painstakingly gone through the exact chain of movement and storage of every exhibit from 1986 onwards, more than 200 items in total, and had concluded that there was no realistic possibility that any of the forensic evidence to be presented in court had come from cross-contamination. So the defence now tried another tack. They tried to suggest that the actual killer was none other than Nicola's father, Barry Fellows. Now this had actually been suggested many years before. It had undoubtedly led to the breakup of the fellow's marriage, and as mud sticks and public opinion was so rife, afterwards Barry had actually left Brighton and moved away up to the Cheshire town of Ellesmere Port to try to start a new life. And it had all stemmed from unsubstantiated allegations that Nicola had been sexually abused by her father and the lodger at the time of her murder, Dougie Judd. Aside from claims made that when Barry Fellows lost his temper, Nicola would stand and shake with fear, that he had once threatened to chop her fingers off for stealing, and that he had deliberately broken his grandmother-in-law's nose during a row, claims were also made that Barry Fellows had been seen watching a pornographic video of Nicola in bed with Judd, made only two to three months before her death. Both men had been arrested in 2009 over these claims, but after a 12-week investigation, no action had been taken. Police had absolutely nothing to suggest that it was true. There was no evidence bar the vicious rumours which had taken its toll on both men over the years. And these old wounds were reopened again in the 2018 trial by Bishop's defence. Douglas Judd denied all claims as a commanding witness when he was called, calling them a tissue of lies, absolutely no truth whatsoever. But the defence saved its harshest cross-examination for Barry Fellows. Questioned about his dead daughter, he answered no when Mr. Benethan asked him, 
were you party to Nicola being filmed for a pornographic video? He gave the same response when asked, were you and another man in your front room watching a homemade video of your own daughter? And was on the verge of tears by the time he had to answer no to the question, were you anything to do with her death? After his cross-examination had finished, Barry Fellows was seen outside court wiping away tears, being comforted by police and perhaps very tellingly by the Hadaway family too. He'd just heard Bishop's defence barrister telling the jury that the fact that the killer put Nicola's knickers back on might point to a weird, almost inconceivable mix of lust and violence on the one hand and parental love on the other. Nicola was the target of the worst abuse, Mr. Benethan had said. Nicola was the target of the greater violence, and yet someone cares enough to redress her afterwards. We know some fathers do kill their children. Pathologist Dr. Nathaniel Carey was able to corroborate the emphatic denials of Barry and Dougie, though, when he was called to give evidence having reviewed the records of Nicola's post-mortem. There was no evidence of any sexual abuse in the months leading up to her death, he testified. It was nothing more than the defence jumping on vicious rumour amid suggestions from a fiend like Bishop. Now I could never in my wildest dreams imagine how hearing something like that must devastate a person. I mean, a father who's lost his daughter in the most tragic, horrific circumstances anyway, but... To compound someone's obvious still raw pain as an obvious tactic, well, I know it's legal and defence is doing what they're instructed to, but it's just unbelievably callous, isn't it? When Bishop himself took the stand, he was taken again through the events of 1986 and the statements that he'd given at the time, and again adapted the stance that he'd checked for pulses on each girl thus explaining the presence of his DNA on Nicola's forearm. He claimed that the blue sweatshirt had been examined whilst out of the evidence bag in the same room as him back in 1986, thus accounting for his DNA being found on that. He then went on further to claim that he was a victim of police brutality, claiming officers had bullied him into making a false statement, totally destroying him. Bishop claimed that officers called him a liar, that they'd been downright nasty, that he was kept a prisoner and he said in court I was having two police officers bullying and totally destroying me in that room I'm dyslexic and I could not read or write I had poor problem solving skills bleating again blaming everyone else but himself once again Bishop then tried to gain sympathy from the jurors, telling them how he'd considered throwing himself and his two children off Beachy Head after the first trial and the subsequent hate campaign. He was, for the first time though, to admit to the attack on Miss X, admitting when asked whether he'd lied in court during his 1990 trial, I didn't tell the truth in any way, shape or form. Yet he still tried to excuse his actions even after this, claiming that he'd been in a bad, bad state at the time of the Devil's Dyke attack, and on the day in question he found that the brake lines of his car had been cut for what he told the jury was about the eighth or ninth time since he walked free from court at the end of the 1987 trial. Immediately before abducting the girl, he said he'd been in a wild temper because he'd hurt himself while changing the wheel of his car like the Incredible Hulk or something, and had decided that he wanted to hurt and belittle someone as a result. 
He insisted that he wasn't a paedophile, but he was just bloody angry, and he'd thought, I might as well do it. Yeah, Bishop actually said this, oblivious to how shocking that was to everyone else in the court to hear. But he couldn't explain why it was a seven-year-old girl that he'd targeted, and he certainly could not bring himself to confess to a sexual interest in children, even when the evidence for it was overwhelming. Mr Altman then confronted Bishop with letters that he'd written to a 13-year-old girl from prison in 1987 while he was on remand awaiting the first Babes in the Wood murder trial. The letters were filled with such lines as Don't give this letter to no one, not to your mum, not to anyone. You will have to go on the pill. How old are you, baby? <laughs> it don't matter. I still say you won't handle 12 inches. A few more weeks and I'll be out and be up to no good again. <laughs> Mr Altman asked him, 12 inches of what, Mr Bishop? To which lamely Bishop replied, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? He maintained the stance that he'd thought the girl that the letters were sent to was about to turn 16 in 1987, even after Mr Altman read him another letter, again authored by Bishop, in which he spoke to the same girl, and he spoke of her having been 11 when he met her back in 1984. Mr Altman continued, This is all rubbish, this is all lies. You have a sexual interest in children. You are a paedophile. Rather than face the truth, Bishop instead refused to give any more evidence and fled from his accuser, abandoning the witness stand halfway through Mr Altman's cross-examination by telling the judge, My lord, if I may, I have finished giving evidence. Bishop didn't even attend the rest of his trial, opting to stay in the cells below the Old Bailey every day. He wasn't even in court when on the 10th of December 2018, 31 years to the day when he was first acquitted of the same crimes, the jury retired to consider their verdict. After just four hours and twenty minutes, they returned a unanimous verdict of guilty of the murders of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. Sentencing Russell Bishop to a second life sentence, one where he was to serve a minimum of 35 years before ever being considered for release, Mr Justice Sweeney said, I have no doubt that you were a predatory paedophile. The terror that each girl must have suffered in their final moments is unimaginable. The babes in the wood finally had their justice. Russell Bishop is now 53 years old and he will be 88 years old before ever being considered for release in 2053. Should he still be alive by then, he will have served 63 years continuous incarceration likely making him Britain's longest ever serving prisoner. Following the verdict, Michelle Hadaway, who was long the public figurehead leading the campaign for justice for Karen and Nicola, issued the following statement. After 32 years of fighting, we finally have justice for Karen and Nicola. Time stood still for us in 1986. To us, then beautiful girls will always be nine years old. They'll never grow up. We've been deprived of a happy life to watch them grow into adults. What people like Bishop inflict on the families of their victims is a living death. They take the lives of children, but they also take the lives of families left behind. Kaz and Nikki, as they were affectionately known, friends playing out together, 
only to have their lives wiped out by a sexual deviant or monster. What's been hard, horrendous and heartbreaking is to hear that they were murdered by a disgusting paedophile who we actually knew and them two girls liked and trusted. He abused that trust. Bishop doesn't deserve to breathe the same clean air as we do. After all, he decided that day to strangle the life out of our two angels, leaving them no air to breathe. What makes a man want to squeeze the life out of two innocent children with his bare hands? Unbelievable when he had a child himself and another one on the way. He is a coward without a conscience. I don't believe you can rehabilitate evil. I think Bishop was just born that way. People talk to me of forgiveness, but I can never forgive or forget what that evil monster did to my beautiful cousin Nicky. I'm trying so hard to get my head around this, but I will because I'm a fighter and I'll never stop being strong for my family. The case of the Babes in the Wood murders has long been one that I've intended to bring to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. If you follow me on Twitter, then you'll see that I do keep an eye on topical crime stories, and when I first went about creating the first series of the show back in 2017, Karen and Nicola's sad tales were one of the first that went on the board on the fridge. Then when it was announced that an unnamed suspect which there was only one person that it could have realistically been, and that was announced as Bishop later, would stand trial for the murders in 2018, I decided to hold off until the end of the second trial in order to tell a fuller story of the case. All I can say really is that it may have taken 32 years, but I'm glad that the families of Karen and Nicola finally have the finger to properly point at their daughter's killer who's now officially and legally recognised as such, and with a bit of fortitude will never again see the light of day from his prison cell, regardless of any age or any infirmity, because that is the very least that such a monster, a manipulative liar, and a predatory paedophile like Bishop deserves. The very least. I absolutely commend the dignity and the never-ending fight that the families of both Karen and Nicola have kept their daughters' names alive with and I'm touched by the continual and existing tributes to the two girls that still exist in the area of Wild Park to this day that have also helped to do this. If I'm ever down that way, it's certainly somewhere that I'd visit, not in a ghoulish way or just to have a gorp, but simply to pay my respects. Bishop's second double murder trial and ultimate conviction, I hope now, can also bring that little bit more closure for them. I mean, of course they'll never forget, no one ever could or should forget, But I also hope that it brings that much more peace for people like Miss X, who must have heard for the first time Bishop's admittance of his complicity in attacking her, or Barry Fellows, who's finally able to legally free himself of the disgusting, salacious accusations about his responsibility in his daughter and her friend's deaths. These are the people who've shared a sentence as much as Bishop has, and it's now finally time for that monster to take these away from them and accept his own sole culpability until the day that he most likely dies in prison. So, over to you guys now. Russell Bishop, what are your thoughts? Are you familiar with the case, and do you think that he could be responsible for other attacks? Head on over to the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion thread and let me know. I think this may be a bit more of a familiar case than we usually cover here on the show, as I said at the start, but... It's a tale that needed to be told, I'm sure that you'll agree.
When I was looking, I couldn't find any other shows that have covered the case to date. I mean, if there is any, then I must have missed them and I apologise, but I'd love you to get in touch to let me know your thoughts concerning the episode. Evil doesn't even come close to describing this guy, really, and if you even saw his mugshot now, without knowing his horrific crimes, I'm sure that he'd still come across to you as the nasty piece of work that he is. His picture from the 80s is of someone that you'd get an automatic urge to slap. Anyway, well I certainly did, even without knowing the scope of his crimes. Both will be up on the show's Instagram page for anyone to have a look and see what you think as well. So it's yet another tragic case this week, but when are they not, I ask you. And I shall be back next week with another tale as well. I'm debating between two as I write this, which I hope you can join me for whichever one I choose then. Thank you very much for joining me today all. I've been and still am Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.